Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Would you say that there's more money in human trafficking than narcotics at this point for the cartels? Yeah, and it's because it is a reusable resource. People always ask, like, what was the favorite undercover work by yeah. far the favorite? You're beating them at their own game on their territory. I was comfortable because, like I said, I grew up in kind of a rough area around gangs, around dope, all that stuff. And so I wasn't uncomfortable in that realm. If dope comes across, the dope gets used and it's, it's done. A human comes across, they're indentured slaves and they just keep using them and using them and using them. Humans are paying up front coming over. So if the cartel loses a load of humans, no big deal. They've already made their money. Those humans get deported back and then they're going to make another run at it. Cartel's going to make money again. I understand for myself that my ticket's already punched. I just don't know the date. And I think that's the same for everybody. And so you just see these things and you're like, well, they were supposed to die right there because that's when it happened. Ladies and gentlemen, as always, it's both an honor and a pleasure to welcome my next guest to the podcast. He spent 31 years uh, active and currently the chief deputy with penal. I think it's penal. I think it should be penal, but it's Penal <laughs> County Sheriff's Office in Arizona right there on the border in the thick of it. He's the author of Interceptors, The Untold Fight Against Mexican Cartels, which I have to, to argue if it's untold. How, how did you tell it? It's, it's in the story yeah. now. It's been told, so you exactly. can't say it anymore. Yeah. He uh, is part of the .27 faith-based organization that connects law enforcement and military uh, with faith-related guidance. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the stage, Matthew Thomas. Hey, how you doing, Mike? Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for coming. I know uh, we flip-flopped Vince, uh, who's also been on the show, Vargas. Uh, he's got you this afternoon. I appreciate you, and I appreciate him being flexible enough to get, get you in this morning. Sir. Uh, what's the last book that you've read? The last book that I read was The Creature from Jekyll Island, which is a little bit out of my genre. What is your genre? Like, I'm, I'm a, a leadership books are big for me. Um, and of course, I love the military stuff, the law enforcement stuff. Um, and this one was a weird one because it was bank related. And uh, it's about the banking industry and uh, kind of goes into the Federal Reserve and how the Federal Reserve holds power and control over not only our nation, but nations throughout the world and their influence on politics and everything else. So it's a good family fun reading. It will, uh, it'll piss you off, man. Yeah. It'll piss you off. Do you yeah. know who wrote it? <clears throat> I, you know, I do not know the author's name. I should. Do you know what the, why the title is creature from Jekyll Island? It, seems, so, it doesn't seem bang. Yes. And, and you find out in the very beginning, uh, because Jekyll Island down in Georgia, uh, you know, it's a very affluent area. And so <clears throat> back when they formed this, um, some of the big names, big money names, were on a secret train down to Jekyll Island to have a meeting to kind of form this essentially banking cartel. Yeah. It's like the Illuminati shit. Yep. Uh, all right. Quick lightning round. Just first thing that comes to your uh, 
comes to your mind. Gotcha. Favorite quote, if you have one. Favorite quote. Ooh, that is probably going to be my favorite Bible verse, Isaiah 6, 8, which is, you know, the Lord asks, whom shall I send? And I said, send me. Awesome. Uh, if time travel existed, where would you go and why? Oh, man. <laughs> That's a, wow, this is going to all sound like faith-based. I would probably go back to hang out with Jesus yeah. and figure things out. <laughs> See what kind of vibe he's putting down. Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't uh, disagree. I, I would for sure, that, that would be in the, in the top, top five for sure. Uh, spirit animal. Spirit animal is probably a lion for me, just being a LEO. All right. Uh, something that you wish you were better at. <clears throat> oh, man. I wish I was better at uh, probably fathering. That's, that's the toughest job yeah. for me. I, uh, I am right there with you 100%. Uh, the hard, hardest thing ever, uh, hands down. Uh, what is your normal morning routine for the first two to three hours? Uh, what time do you get up and, and what's that look like? So normal routine is up at about 4.15, um, some coffee, get dressed, hit the gym. What does the gym look like <clears throat> routine-wise? Uh, it, it really varies because my wife goes with me. She's my workout partner. Um, and it's kind of twofold, right? We get our workout on, but we also get some alone time, hangout time. Um, and we really don't have a set regimen cause I don't, I just don't dig that. I like to get to the gym and whatever we're filling, whatever she's filling or I'm filling, we'll go that direction. But we usually start with some cardio, get some cardio out of the way first, get everything warmed up. Uh, cause I'm older now and got to get everything <laughs> warmed up Yeah, and then, uh, we'll hit some weights. Uh, but I don't do heavy anymore cause that hurts. Yeah. So, same, uh, same thing. Yeah. Just a good kind of high intensity workout with some weights. Yeah. Do you eat afterwards? I have not been lately, so I've been trying to do this fasting thing where um, I wait until lunch to eat. Um, pre Probably two years ago, um, I would religiously drink a shake before working out, drink a shake after working out, <clears throat> and uh, I, just, um, I felt blah, you know, and so I've been doing this over the past probably three or four months, and... <clears throat> I just feel like I have more energy. Yeah. So you notice a big difference. Yeah. 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 When do you subscribe to a, a particular eating type? So I'm uh, this this career right, and you know from military, um, I am pre diabetic. Oh and, no shit. Uh, have high blood pressure, right? And so the pre diabetes, I'm fighting genetics really, um, and this career. So we have uh, we have some doctors <clears throat> that specialize in LEO, uh, first responders. And what this job does to you is, <clears throat> excuse me, my throat's giving me problems. <clears throat> um, so what this job does to you is uh, with all the adrenaline dumps, the cortisol, all that stuff over time, uh, it just wears on your system. You're constantly under stress. You're hypervigilant all the time. And so what I didn't understand as a young cop is that when I, I hit this age, and, and none of us really plan on living this long, I don't think you, you think along the way, you know, you're going hard at it and you'll probably die young. Um, and then you get to the other side of it and you start finding out that all of those years of high stress and lack of sleep and all that stuff starts showing up physiologically. And uh, so pre-diabetes and high blood pressure are two normal things for cops when they hit the end of their career. And so I'm fighting against that. And uh, once I got diagnosed with that, I started cutting out carbs, uh, processed carbs and, you know, bread, stuff like that, and uh, went 
higher protein, uh, more vegetables, and uh, it's very tough. And then staying away from, you know, sugars and sweets and stuff like that. And yeah. So that's kind of kind of my diet. That was a super long answer for that. But No, I get it. The uh, I'm curious that with the pre-diabetic thing, uh, were there symptoms or was it on a blood test? You're like, oh, your A1C is fucking through the roof. Yeah, it was a blood test, man. I, I didn't. There was nothing bothering me. I just went in. Uh, we have this thing called Heart Fit for Duty, right? And what they focus on is uh, first responders. So you go in and they do a full panel, but these doctors have specialized in first responders. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking for more stuff that they know affects us. I got you. And so they do a really deep dive panel and break it down for you. And it was during one of those annual checkups that he came in and he's like, yeah, man, your, your A1C is up there. Because they give you that, I don't know what that nasty stuff is that you have to drink and it shoots your blood sugar up really quick. And they can tell from how well your body maintains once it gets that shot. And, and uh, he's like, yeah, your your blood sugar's a little bit out of control. You're not diabetic yet. You're right here. And <clears throat> he kind of showed me my numbers and said, you know, here's the plan moving forward. Yeah. <clears throat> well, I hope, uh, I hope it doesn't get any worse than that. I appreciate that. Me too. Yeah. <laughs> What are the two key components for canine success? That's effective training and proper nutrition. Fueled by Team Dog brings those two components to your family and best friend. The perfect nutritional balance that results in a higher mental acuity, energy, overall vitality, and even an improved appearance. Every product you will find in my company's store was born from the battlefield and not from the boardroom. Let my life's work help you become your dog's hero. Uh, where are you originally from? Are you from that area? I am. I was born and raised in Phoenix, and uh, now I kind of live on the outskirts of Phoenix, but uh, born and raised in Arizona. Oh. Um, so with that, I mean, so what What year were you born? 70s, 80s? 72. 72. Yep. So contrasting from when you grew up until now, I mean, is it just night and day different? Oh, yeah. Dude, I mean, you know, guys our age always say it. Like, if we had the phones and stuff... Yeah. All that stuff going when we were young kids, we'd all be in prison probably. But yeah, uh, contrast in just technology, contrast in behavior. Because I feel like, I mean, I, I, sorry, go ahead. I, I was going to say, I grew up in a rough neighborhood, right? And so there was a lot of cops in and out of that neighborhood. But we were not confrontational and disrespectful yeah. to the cops when they'd show up. It was just, you know, you'd, you'd do what they said and they were doing their thing. We were doing ours. But I feel like in today's world... The, uh, the youth is just so disrespectful of any authority. It doesn't really matter. It's crazy. Yeah. I guess I, I meant specific to Phoenix. Like, is it, I mean, obviously it's grown a lot, oh. but I mean, is it Yeah, yeah, yeah. like not even the same? No, yeah, that's definitely not the same because uh, back then a lot smaller, yeah. um, back in the 70s and 80s and not really on the radar for anybody, you know, for as a big town. And now it's fifth largest city in the nation. And so oh, it's, it's uh, really, really big. Yeah, yeah. you can drive. I'm near an hour and a half and still not be on the other side of Phoenix. Yeah. Uh, as it relates to your job now, looking back, uh, growing up, did you see any similarities as far as illegal immigration, uh, in that area being so close to the border? Was it like, like, can you kind of shed some light on that? Yeah. So when I was young, like you, you knew people came over illegally. And I mean, even in my neighborhood, we had some people that were there illegally. Um, but it was very few and far between. What was more more likely to have happened is they come up and they work, and they'll work for a while, make some money, and go back and be with their family. Um, that has definitely changed over time. 
and we have more and more that are coming and staying. Um, and especially now, I mean, the numbers are through the roof. We have, and, and it typically it was all Mexico, right? So you had uh, Mexicans from Mexico coming over. They would either do day labor or they would do um, like, you know, a couple months of labor and go back. Um, and then it turned into Mexicans coming over and staying illegally. Um, and now it is wide open, like the just Chinese, African, Syrian, you have just a conglomeration of, of people coming across. So it looks completely different now than it did back then. And back then, the routes were not controlled by a criminal organization. So people could just find their way through, make it not get extorted, robbed, raped, any of that stuff. And these days, the cartels completely control all of those routes. And so you have to pay taxes, you run the possibility, the, the women, they get raped, they they understand that, and it's almost uh, part of the deal when they're coming through. It's really? totally different than when I was growing up. Wow. Um, is it, and we'll get more into this uh, here as, as we kind of chronologically work through your, your story, but um, would you say that there's more money in human trafficking than narcotics at this point for the cartels? Yeah, and it's because it is a reusable resource, right? Um, and, well, twofold. Reusable resource. So, you know, if, if dope comes across, the dope gets used and it's, it's done. A human comes across, they, they're indentured slaves, and they just keep using them and using them and using them. Uh, not only that, but they have to prepay their trip. So when dope comes across, dope is coming over, and when it hits its landing spot, then they receive payment for it. The exact opposite for humans. Humans are paying up front coming over. So if the cartel loses a load of humans, no big deal. They've already made their money. Those humans get deported back, and then they're going to make another run at it. Cartel's going to make money again. And then a lot of times what they do is they get them over for that first payment. And then when they get into the states, they say, oh, you know, now you want to go here. So that's going to be extra. Or they're going to have somebody that's kind of a one-off from the original organization that says, well, that was them that you paid. Now you're with me. And so you're going to either pay me more or you're going to work it off. Like for women, it's you're going to work it off sexually um, or you're going to haul drugs or, you know, do whatever the cartel wants you to do to work that off. But you never work it off. You become essentially a slave to their organization. Yeah. That's pretty brutal. Um, yeah. Like I said, we'll, we'll get uh, further into that here in a minute. I just want to go back to your childhood just a little bit. Yep. Uh, siblings. No siblings. Only, only child. Uh, plenty of sports growing up? I did. I played uh, soccer and baseball mainly. And then when I got in, my mom didn't want me playing football, but she didn't. I don't think she realized soccer was just as rough in our neighborhood. But uh, <laughs> uh, soccer and baseball growing up and then uh, football in high school and uh, basketball in high school. Yeah. Did you go to college or did you go right in? I did not. I went right in. I was 20 years old when I started. Yeah. And so uh, I got out of high school at 18 and kind of floated around for a little bit trying to figure it out. And then uh, my mom said, you got to figure something out. And it was either I was looking at the Marine Corps and I was looking at this and, and ended up going into law enforcement and been there since. Yeah. Uh, so growing up, you know, I'd say the entire process did joining the military or being law enforcement. Because to me, you know, the mentality and, and the guys are – very similar, you know, right. it's like military and law enforcement are kind of cut from the same cloth. So was there, from your thought process, uh, an element of that growing up or, or did it 
kind of get to the point where it's like, fuck, I don't know what else to do. So I'm going to. It was a little bit of both. So my grandparents were uh, World War II vets. Um, and so, you know, I, I saw my grandpa's uniform. I saw the pictures. Uh, didn't really hear a lot of stories, but I saw his buddies that he would hang out with from the war um, and saw that camaraderie. I think that had an effect on me just seeing that brotherhood. Um my dad wasn't around. My mom was a single mom. And so I spent a lot of time with my grandpa and grandma who lived close by. And so my grandpa kind of became my father figure. And then there was an element of, I got to figure this out, you know, because like I said, I, I graduated high school. I was in a small town, didn't know what I wanted to be when I grew up and uh, was kind of floating around just doing, you know, odd jobs. And my mom was like, no, this is, you're not going to do this for your life. You got to pick something um, and then uh, my wife was my girlfriend at 19, and she ended up pregnant. So we're both 19 years old. She's going to have a baby. So now I really got to figure it out. And so at 19 years old, that's where I said, well, I've, I've got to go because I need the stability. I need the insurance. I've got to go military. I've got to go into government work. And so uh, I chose sheriff's office. And so I got hired when I was 20. Uh, she was 21, and we had our, our first baby so I started, we had our kid in 92, and I started in 93. Oh, wow. Was there a defining moment that made you choose law enforcement over the military? Yeah. yeah. Uh, I was actually headed more towards the Marine Corps, and uh, I know it's going to sound odd to some of the people out there, but I got in a fight with my recruiter. <laughs> like an actual fist fight? <laughs> no, we, uh, we got in a, a phone argument. Um, so at that time, the Army had a two-year program, right? So you could go two years active and then I think it was, what was it, four or six years inactive, whatever. <clears throat> My recruiter told me, yeah, we have the same program. Because I told him I want to go to the Marine Corps. And he said, yep, we have the same program, two-year program, cool. So I get all the paperwork done. My mom goes down there with me. We do a whole bunch of stuff. And <clears throat> I was due to go and, you know, swear in and do the final stuff. And so I meet with my recruiter and we're going through, you know, everything and he gets to the uh, the years and he's like four years because I knew in my mind I wanted to do two years get out and I wanted to come be a cop and um, I, I was just getting myself to that that 21 year mark to be a cop um so we're going through all that stuff and he says no 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 it's four years and I said no dude you told me it was two years and he goes well we don't do that we you know only the army does that and I said well you know dude you told me that you did two years and he goes well it's too late now and and you know he's he was being a dick and too late now you're signed up. And I said, I ain't signed shit, dude. So I'm out of here. And he's like, no, you're not. You're gonna. And so I was like, <laughs> fuck you, dude. So that was it. That was my, my Marine Corps yeah. career. So we got into it. I left and I told my mom, yeah, he lied to me. So you can go to hell. And yeah. uh, that's when I shifted focus. Yeah. Lesser of two evils. Always good. To, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, so you're 51? 51. Yeah. Yep. And you don't look 51. I feel it, bro. Yeah. Did you dye your beard? <laughs> no. Dude. Really? Everybody no, asks you that, don't they? Yeah. But and, and they're like, well, how, yeah, how the how different you... colors? And I said, it's the Scottish yeah. in me, yeah. man. I don't know. Oh, I dig it. <laughs> Good stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, I have no hair and uh, my shit's half gray at this point. <laughs> it's all good. Um, all right. So you join at 21 and, and you're having a kid kind of uh, same wife that you're married to now? Yep. yep. Yeah, that's impressive. Yeah. That's, that's uh, rare. How many kids do you guys have? We have three. Three. Yep. Uh, boys, girls. I've got the oldest is a girl. She's a nurse down in uh, Florida. Uh, middle daughter who is uh, gave us our first grandbaby. We have a grandbaby mm. now that's a year old, and uh, she's down. Her husband's a cop in Louisiana, and she lives there in Louisiana. 
And then my youngest is a boy at home. He's uh, in high school. Oh, nice. Yeah. That's good stuff. Um, all right. So you join, uh, you get hired on. Going through the academy, and this was quite a while ago, I'm sure a lot has changed oh, yeah. uh, in the academy, but yeah. kind of expectation versus reality when you show up and, and go through. Um, so you, you hear horror stories because back then the academies were tougher than they are now, uh, tougher in the sense that uh, more boot campish. And so you hear these horror stories of what they're going to do to you, how they're going to treat you, they're going to beat you down, all this stuff. Um, and so that is what I had in my mind, which I, I didn't really mind because I had a, a, my grandpa was a hard man. Uh, and like I said, he was my father figure. He was an old Texan and World War II vet. So you can imagine, you know, it, it, he was he was hard on me. So the, uh, that, that part didn't scare me, and I actually looked forward to the regimen, and I also felt like, well, that's good because it's going to get rid of weak fuckers that don't belong here. And so um, that's what I was expecting going into the academy, and then they fooled us the first couple of days because as you get there, they were super nice, like, hey, welcome in, come on in, and we got all our stuff ready. And, Fucking honeypotting you. Yeah, and I, I had no clue, right? I didn't know what was coming, and so... First day, welcome. Second day, kind of get your shit straight. And then third day, like all hell broke loose. And they, you know, it was still dark outside and they're throwing trash cans down the hallways and kicking people out of beds and all kinds of stuff. And I was like, what the fuck is going on here? And so they, they hit us hard and then they, they were on us for probably about four weeks like that. And, and so that is more what I had envisioned, but I didn't realize because, you know, you don't know what you don't know. Um, and then <clears throat> just as, as any program like that, they lay off of you eventually. And then, uh, we kind of shifted focus after they got all of us kind of molded, shifted focus and academics became kind of the priority. Yeah. Do they go hands on with you at all in that first four weeks back then? Did they, um, they slapped no, you around at all? See, nah, what they did was they made us go hands on with each other. Oh, okay. So they would never touch you or hit you. They would all right, we're going to do a scenario and let's see, <laughs> you're this tall, this much weight. So we're going to put you up somebody against uh, that guy. He's double your weight and size. And so, you, you know, you yeah. have to get in there and fight your way out of it. Yeah. Is there a uh, funniest story that comes to mind during the Academy? Oh man. Um, so <laughs> I thought I was going to get kicked out again. I got, I got kicked out of my very first Academy. Oh really? Yeah. Wow. Um, there was, <laughs> we were on a college campus. We went to a, a uh, volleyball game, girls volleyball game. And uh, I was with a group of, of dudes, you know, from the academy. One of the guys in our group got accused of saying something to some girl. And uh, <clears throat> they swore that me and two other guys were party to the conversation. And so they call us in on the carpet and, you know, they're grilling us. And I'm like, dude, I, you know, I, I didn't say anything. I didn't hear him say anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and the director of the academy said, well, you're all lying and you're out of here. So he sent us back to our agency. And so uh, we met with the sheriff. And I mean, you know, that's you're on the carpet with the sheriff who sends you. Now you've embarrassed the agency. Yeah. So standing in front of the man and, and he said, you know, explain what happened. And I said, well, they're accusing us of lying. I said, put, put us on a polygraph, you know, because I, I have no way to disprove what he's saying. But we're not lying. So the sheriff said, no, nah, don't worry about it. I'm just going to send you to another academy. I don't like that guy anyways. And so <clears throat> went to a second academy. And so I'm in the academy and uh, 
you know, after I think it was about week five or six, you're comfortable with everybody. You know, you got your, your bunk mates and, and uh, you're kind of getting to know everybody. And of course, we're, you know, 20 something year old guys. And so we start screwing around in the hallways. And at the end of the hallway where so you had a it's just a long hallway <clears throat> rooms on opposing sides all the way through, you know, where everybody slept. And at the end, there's a big door that goes outside with two um, two pieces of glass on each side. And so we're doing some hallway football, and uh, I, I went through the glass <laughs> at the end of the hallway <laughs> and broke yeah. the glass. And uh, so, you know, I, I had to go fall on the sword. for so I, And we have uh, what is a recruit training officer, so they're a cop already. They're one of your trainers, and he lives with you in there. So I go and knock and let him know, like, hey, uh, I broke the glass. And he's like, what the hell? And I said, ah, we're screwing around, you know, inside. And he's like, all right. So uh, I got points for uh, telling the truth and coming forward. And so I didn't get kicked out. I just, you know, we paid the price physically. Yeah. Did you get injured? No, because it, it, it was the uh, shatterproof stuff. Oh, so I I, essentially, I just, I hit it, yeah. shattered it, and didn't I go through. You. How, uh, how long is the academy in total? Now it's different. Back then we were 20 weeks, I want to say. Now I think it's about 22 or 24. Oh, okay. And uh, how much time and, and emphasis was put on back then combatives? Oh, man. It was it was part of the weekly routine. So like I said, they would uh, we would do um, basic combatives, and then we would do which was uh, arrest techniques and pressure points and, you know, leveraging uh, like arm bars, stuff like that. We would practice those, but the difficult part of that is, of course, if you try to practice at any speed, you're going to injure each other. So you're practicing it at slower speeds and, and uh, not at 100%. But then what they would do, and I think this was more of a heart thing, is uh, they would mount you up with some some boxing gloves and a boxing helmet, put you on your knees. You'd have to do some burpees, some push-ups, that kind of stuff to get uh, gassed out. And then on your knees, you would have to go toe-to-toe with, with somebody equal size and just fight it out. And I got, uh, I got my nose broke doing that um, in the academy, and I got uh, a little bit of a concussion. And so we would go pretty hard. Um, but again, it wasn't, they weren't really teaching us any specific combatives. I think that was more of a heart thing. Do you yeah. have the heart to fight and keep going? Yeah. Um, and uh, so, yeah, but throughout the academy, from start to finish, weekly, you have pieces of combatives that they're teaching you and you progress. Sure. Um, is it still that way? Yes, it is. Um, the techniques have gotten better. Um, but I think. It's called defensive tactics, right? That that's the name for it. And uh, anything defensive is tough in today's world because uh, realistically, I think you understand. I understand that you have to be violent first and controlled violence, but you have to be violent first to win a battle. And defensive, just in the name, uh, you know, it's it's all pressure points and stuff like that. And I've been in a couple of fights where I tried to use the tools they gave me, pressure points and pepper spray. And um, in one particular fight, the guy was just kicking my ass. I'm trying to use all the, the legal stuff I'm supposed to do. And he's kicking my ass and another guy's ass all over the front porch. And finally, I just went back to my roots of growing up 
in a gang neighborhood and we went to street fighting and that's what solved the problem. Yeah. Um, so <clears throat> it's, uh, I just think law enforcement needs to get more progressive in the area of offensive um, tactics yeah. instead of defensive. Yeah. All right, folks, uh, you know, sleep is one of the most important things uh, for a healthy lifestyle and, you know, just generally speaking for, for overall health and well-being. I started working with Beam here uh, in the last couple of months, and I got to tell you, the natural sleep cycle that uh, it helps enable is uh, absolutely noticeable, and it's fantastic. Um, I can't recommend this product enough. Uh, if you're having trouble sleeping or staying asleep, uh, if you wake up feeling uh, groggy and, and just hard to be able to uh, to focus the next day, uh, you know, that foundation of mental and physical health is uh, is key. So Beam's Dream Powder, it's a science-backed hot cocoa for sleep, and uh, it's helped me tremendously with uh, being able to fall asleep and actually stay asleep, waking up feeling rested and, uh, and not groggy the next day. So today my listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, which is the science-backed hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. They have uh, delicious flavors like chocolate peanut butter and cinnamon cocoa, 15 calories, zero grams of sugar, and that better sleep has never tasted better. Other sleep aids can cause next-day grogginess, but Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, apigenin, and melatonin to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. Go to www.beam.com and use the code MICDROP, all caps, all one word, for 40% off. It's right, 40% off if you use mic drop, all one word, all caps, 40% off. Do it. All right, guys, I've talked to a number of times on the show that I don't, I'm not a drinker. Like, I, I rarely drink. Um, however, from a ritual standpoint, like, for example, my dad comes into town for Christmas, uh, and I do like to have a, uh, a glass of bourbon with my old man. The problem is, is that between me not drinking that much and uh, just as I get older, uh, coupled with the fact that I stay active, I have a very dialed in and particular morning routine. Something as simple as a glass of bourbon or a couple of them uh, when I am not used to drinking them can really uh, mess me up for the next day or even a couple of days. Um, I tried Z-Biotics. I was, I'll admit, I was a little skeptical, um, but they sent me a product to try and, uh, and this Christmas uh, used the product, had bourbon with the dad, uh, no problem the next morning. I was, uh, pleasantly surprised, uh, at how well it, it worked at, uh, you know, it, it's a phenomenal product that I can tell you, uh, you know, I actually used and, uh, and was surprised by the results. So this isn't something for somebody who drinks all the time. Um, it's not a, uh, you know, a, a product that, uh, you know, somebody who, drinks every day after work or ties one on all the time is, is probably going to uh, get use out of. It's more for the healthy adults that don't drink that much in the instances where socially they still want to be able to do that. This is your go-to product for it. Um, <clears throat> I will say, um, you know, if you go to zbiotics.com forward slash mic drop, you can get 15% off your first order. If you use mic drop, all one word, all caps uh, at checkout, it's back to the 100% money-back guarantee. Uh, if you're unsatisfied for any reason, they will refund your money, no questions asked. So give it a shot. You have nothing to lose. Uh, again, that's uh, 3w.zbiotics.com slash mic drop and use the code mic drop, all caps, all one word at checkout for 50% off. 
Uh, great product, great company, stand behind vets, and uh, I appreciate working with them. Uh, give it a shot. As you guys know, sleep is a huge component to recovery uh, and really all aspects in life, and it's something that a lot of us have struggled with, uh, you know, for a lot of our lives, frankly. Uh, as you know, I've been a, uh, a big proponent of Beam, which is a hot cocoa that, uh, you know, you drink before you go to sleep, and it's helped tremendously in terms of hours of sleep maintained as well as the uh, quality of sleep. Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, which is their science-backed hot cocoa for sleep, and it's got no added sugar. Better sleep has never tasted better. As you know, other sleep aids can cause next-day grogginess um, and just make you feel crappy, but Dream contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium, L-theanine, and apigenin, also melatonin, to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up feeling refreshed. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, get up to 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash mic drop, all caps, all one word, and use code mic drop, all one word, all caps at checkout. That's shopbeam.com slash mic drop and use code mic drop for up to 40% off. For, is there kind of an overarching discipline martial arts wise uh, that, that you would say from your experience um, should be focused on? Well, I, I think we all know ground fighting is the, the key in today's world because we know that a lot of our fights go to the ground and that's where we lose control. And I can tell you in my fight that I was just talking about, that's where I was trying to gain control using pressure points and, and arm bars and that kind of stuff, but uh, not having been trained in any jiu-jitsu at that point, um, the stuff just wasn't working. And had that guy had a better grip on things, he, he could have handed my ass to me. So I think uh, jiu-jitsu is very important, and it's starting to come into the law enforcement world. But the problem is society doesn't like the way it looks. Right. And so we, we suffer that problem. To me, it's still better than say Muay Thai. You know, it's better than yeah, elbows, elbows to the fucking head. <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. Um, and I agree. I mean, I, you know, I've been training jujitsu for a while now and, and, uh, I'm baffled at how few law enforcement yeah. guys do it in their spare time. Right. You know? Because it, you're in today's world, you're constantly worried about getting sued. And so if you do anything outside of what your, uh, usually the state regulates, you know, what you're allowed to do. And if you do out, anything outside of the norm, you open yourself up for lawsuits because that's the first thing defense lawyers will go for. Well, were you trained in that by your agency? Well, no, I do it on my own. Oh, you do it on your own. So you just you know decided to do some moves that you weren't trained, that weren't accepted in the industry, yeah. blah, blah, blah. To me, the, the easy fix for that would be to have every department uh, like pair up or, or uh, work with a few local gyms mm -hmm. that they're sanctioned by. And, right. and so you can say like, you know, th they pay in most gyms at this point. I mean, a lot of them will do it for free for law right. enforcement, but even if it's like, Hey, we give them a $500 or a thousand dollar a month retainer for our, our guys to, to train there. And it's, it's a extracurricular. Like to me, that would solve that problem. Well, it doesn't solve the state problem, though. The, the state wants to maintain control, so uh, and they are the the authority, the, the, the board that gives us our certification and that uh, approves curriculum. So if you have a state board that does not approve jiu-jitsu specifically for use on the street, then you're leaving yourself uncovered. Yeah. I guess, you know, so in that case, having to take it into your own hands, train, 
you know, I, I still think it makes sense to, you know, to be so good or proficient enough, maybe is a better way to put it, to where you can control somebody and yeah. not hurt them. Yeah. You well, and, and honestly, um, like I was saying in, in my fight, like training in jujitsu um, and not having to use it most of the time, but if you get in a situation where you do have to use it, it's all articulation, right? And so being able to say like, yeah, this was out of bounds. Like this was not something I was taught in the academy or that's an approved technique. But like for me, I was gassed. The guy was gaining ground on me and I went to moves that were not approved. I, I went to fist strikes that were definitely not approved. And uh, I, you know, I was hitting him in the head with my baton. That's a big no-no. Uh, I was doing whatever I could do to win that fight. And so I think when you get to that point in a fight, it really doesn't matter. Like you don't give a shit about lawsuits and all that yeah. stuff. You're giving a shit about survival. Yeah. I guess I'm just thinking of it from a, you know, along the jujitsu, it sounds like you train, right? I, I did a yeah. little bit. Yeah, I, I haven't in a while. It's been a minute. I mean, to me, you know, along the path, you get to a certain point where I think you're good enough to be able to almost do things, you know, or like, <laughs> right. you know, like the, the the flow rolling aspect. Like once you get to that level where, you know, you, you almost complete submissions and, yeah. and, and you just and then you kind of roll out of them and, and keep doing, you know, if, if you're at that level, which granted, it takes years to get to that point, but you know, when you're at that level, like you get somebody in a controlling position. And then I think one of the biggest problems is guys knowing just enough to fuck it up, you right. know, and then like the, the example on the, that train in New York, that Marine that right. fucking killed the guy, you know, it's like if, if you're, you know, to me, he knew just enough to be, to be dangerous, yeah. you know, and, and that's where more training is, is I think a lot better and that you just get to that point where like you can control somebody and, and start to put their lights out and, and you've done it enough to know when to give them enough to keep them alive, you know, and, yep. you, and you just kind of flow back and forth between choking them out and letting them come back and, and whatever. Um, well, that becomes the problem for, for us in law enforcement that it, it goes back to that, that state control again in, in whatever state you're in. It's usually like a post board, the peace officer standard and training. Um, and to have an approved curriculum or an approved technique or whatever, they have all these expert instructors that have to do all this stuff and go all through these things and make it defensible, right? They have to make it defensible in court. And that's what gets in the way most of the time is, is trying to make everything defensible takes years and years and years. What's acceptable, what's not. I mean, chokeholds that, that became a big no, no in our industry, right? Because you had one death well, for something applied wrong. And yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I, I, you know, to me, it's, it's a double-edged sword and that, um, you know, to me, the, the beauty of chokeholds is that there's no damage, right. you know, if you do them right, right. You know, like you can go to a doctor, like you break somebody's arm, you rip their shoulder, you do a heel hook and fuck their knee up. I mean, right. really everything else, there's going to be quantifiable, you know, doctor certified physical damage that you injured this guy. Whereas if you, get somebody in an S mount with a triangle or take their back and, and just control them and, and choke them to where the, the lights start to go out and then you let them come back, you know, and, and you just stay in, in that mode until you get somebody to help you out or whatever yeah. uh, you can keep from injuring them and killing them. And I think that's the key, like for our industry, when you talk about jujitsu is control techniques, because yeah. that's really what you're going for. You're trying to maintain control of a person while people have time to get to you so you can yeah. get help. Yeah. We took a little bit of a tangent there, but uh, <laughs> that's all good. Uh, so when you first got on, it's 93, 94. Mm-hmm. Um, what was the first kind of, kind of, if you would chronologically walk us through your, your career? 
so I started in our jail. So I, I started as a detention officer working in the jail. Um, and then <clears throat> we would make our way out of the jail. If you wanted to go out and be a deputy, um, you would get first preference. And so after about six months or so, I started looking at that because I knew at that point, like, I, I don't want to be in the jail for years and years. I want to get out and, and do cop work. And so then I went out to the road as a deputy and was, you know, just a street cop deputy and uh, did that for a couple of years and then went into what we call traffic. And our traffic unit was uh, they would do fatal accidents. They would do speed and DUI details. Um, and then the beauty of it at that point is they did some criminal interdiction, uh, drug interdiction stuff. And so that's where I wanted to head. So I, I got into that next. Before you go any further, mm-hmm. so jail time, uh, beat cop time. Yep. Um, dur- during each, each phase of your career, is there a story that you could share that stands out as being the most memorable from that, that period of your career? <laughs> uh, yeah, I got several stories. Like the jail thing is funny cause you're, you're living in a, you know, it's a little city and, and, uh, <clears throat> all these people in there have their own little culture and, uh, they segregate themselves and all that. Uh, one of the funnier stories was that I, cause I, you know, I'm a rookie at this. And uh, they would make these things called stingers to uh, heat up their coffee. And so what they would do is they would find wire in the walls or somewhere in their pods, and they would pull this wire out, and they would form it into to, to be able to fit into a plug, and then it would go down and it would double around and kind of coil, and they would stick their um, cup, uh, that inside the cup, and it would heat the water up with, using the electricity. Uh, well, being the dumbass young guy that I was, I caught a guy using that, and they were illegal um, in the jail. So I caught a guy using that, and, and of course, he, he takes his cup off of it real quick and starts to walk away, and I'm like, hey, come here. And he starts to walk away, and then I go and I grab it to take it out. It's still wet. And so uh, gave me a little zap, and uh, <laughs> I learned a real quick life lesson there about electricity. Yeah. Um, but that was one of the, yeah, that was one of my memories inside the jail. I guess before we move on from your time at the jail, I am curious. I've had a couple other guys on over the years, Vince being one of them also, that have spent time in jails. And I'm I'm always fascinated at, A, that culture, which, you know, is, is pretty glorified in, in uh, not the media, but in pop culture, you know, right. movies, TV shows, what have you. But, but it does seem to me counterintuitive, the kind of the way that our society uh, has set up the, the whole jail culture, right. um, you, you know, like the, what they allow to be done and, and considering punishment versus not. And, and just to me, I, like I look at it and I'm just like for guys in that position, kind of like young kids in school, like for you to have the, the free time and the energy to be that fucking attitudinal, <laughs> uh, we're doing something wrong. Right. You know, like it's obviously not punishment if you can create your own gangs and have, currency and bartering systems and tattoo shops and making drugs and wine. And right. like, it's just like something needs to be different. So I'm, I'm curious as somebody who spent 31 years in the law enforcement system, some of which in the jail, if, if you were all of the sudden the, the County sheriff and, and you were in charge of, of jails and you had nobody to answer to, how would you set up a prison to where if, if your goal is to, from a recidivism standpoint, make it to where it's actually teaching people a lesson from a punishment standpoint, what would you do? Man, well, first thing that comes to mind for me, which people are not going to like, but uh, would be hard labor, right? Uh, because I, I think that uh, 
if you get people into that environment. They've made a mistake in society. Society has set up these rules that say, hey, if you make these mistakes, you can't be a part of us, so go to this spot. Well, when they're in that spot, we have them, A, doing something productive, B, something hard, um, and C, that they don't like, right? And so you don't want them to enjoy the flavor for that place so that they, you know, like to your point, they don't mind coming back a lot of times. It's a, it's a reunion for them. They're back in there with their boys. They're kind of running shop. They get what they want, uh, do what they want. No issues, no problems. Um, so straightening that up would be a big thing to not be an attractive place to go for these gangsters and thugs. Um, so that that would be a key component. And then, uh, honestly, like for the youngsters, that's something that uh, my sheriff has been focused on is the young guys going in there, um, helping them turn their life around in a positive way. So giving them some positive role models and uh, doing some programs where we can separate out those young males and almost boot campish, put them through stuff where they're having to follow a regimen, they're having to have responsibilities and having to earn things um, and get them back in line so when they go back out, they're not attracted right back into that that gang life or that yeah. culture. Would you change the, uh, n- not not only the activities, but just the, the things that they're allowed to have? Oh, and, dude, yeah. Like, would you, what would you take, everything? Yeah, I, I, I mean, you know, you don't want them completely idle, right? Because then they're just working all kinds of stuff in their head and, and they'll do their own thing. Um, but you got to take away the stuff that, that gives them enjoyment. Cause again, it, it should not be an enjoyable experience, like a break for them. And a lot of them, they're, they're hooked on dope or, or, you know, whatever the case may be from the street and they're in there and it's just a break from the street and, and they're having a good old time and not facing any real consequences. Um, so yeah, I, I, it just, you, you need to have it tough in there where they don't want to be there. So they, they don't have their commissary. Cause I mean, they'll get money on their books from uh, family outside and they're living like Kings, man. They're ordering all kinds of food that they want. And, uh, God forbid you don't give them something. The ACLU will be all over you, right? Because you have deprived this person of, of these supposed rights that they all have, even though they have violated society's rules and are locked up um we still have to treat them with kitted gloves a lot of times because of that is the commissary stuff is that a is that a right or is it i mean rule wise like could uh, they just say no more commissary at all you don't get anything yeah we could and and quite frankly i it, it's a, a money maker for us as well so <clears throat> when they buy commissary that makes money for the sheriff's office and then we t- turn around and use that money to put back into stuff like programs and things for the inmates yeah is there a craziest contraband thing that you found uh, while you were there? Craziest contraband in the jail? Not really. I mean, you know, because everything's, when you're in there, it's all kind of normal. Like the stinger thing, the, the, the shivs or shanks, the, the homemade knives that they make. Um, some of the most, I think, creative stuff I saw was, they, so they would buy socks and they would disassemble the socks, the thread, and then they would take that thread and they would remake it into like a braided necklace. And they could make these shapes with names in them and stuff. I mean, it was ingenious. I had no idea how they did this stuff. But wow. some of the things they did with uh, just, you know, supplies like that that they would get were, were ingenious things. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's wild. Um, all right, so moving on to the beat cop phase of your career, same kind of thing. Any uh, crazy calls or stories that stand out? Um, as a beat cop, I, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, what's what's crazy to people, maybe not be crazy to us because it's just normal, but uh, I'm trying to think of my first, I, like my first fatal, because so I went into traffic, I told you, and, and my first fatal kind of blew my mind because you don't understand the damage that can be done to human bodies uh, until you see a bad crash. So my first fatal that I worked was uh, both vehicles were at 65 miles an hour and almost a complete head-on. I mean, they missed oh, head-on wow. completely by maybe six inches off. So they were almost completely head-on, 65 each, so that's a hell of an impact. And uh, this is going to be a little bit gruesome, but it was fascinating to me at the time. Um, the driver of the one vehicle, I found his... So bottom row of teeth with the gum still attached had basically dislodged from the bone and a chunk of his teeth were in the back window in the very back corner. And I just remember and like, how does that happen? Like how, how, how can you get hit so hard that your whole row of teeth ends up in a little wow. piece of a compartment and just the, so the, the bodies being mangled as they were. Um, and then you remember the smells, right? All the smells of, uh, because you can smell the blood, you can smell the battery acid, you can smell the coolant. Um, and it's funny because now, even now, you know, like my wife and I will get out at the gym and I'll be like, somebody's battery's bad. And she's like, what do you mean? I said, you can't smell that. You smell the acid. I can smell their acid. So I know their battery's going out. Wow. She's like, I don't smell anything, but it's a, it, and it takes you right back to scenes like that. Yeah. Uh, I'm assuming, well, obviously everybody died. Were there more than two people? Was there a bunch no, there, it was a driver on, on each car. So single yeah. driver, single driver, yeah. uh, hit head on and they were both DRT. They were dead right there. Yeah. Do you, uh, do you remember what the circumstances were? Or? It looks, I, you know, cause we're putting it back together with two dead people. So yeah. we're just trying to figure it out from road evidence. And, and what it looked like is, uh, two lane highway. And it looks like one just drifted over. We don't know if he fell asleep. And that's the other fascinating thing that, I mean, I find it fascinating is as I went through this career, you work accidents like this one. So one guy, they're going 65 miles an hour and one guy drifts over into the other lane at the exact moment that another car is there and they meet and they both get killed. Um, and I've seen a lot of that throughout my career where I've been like, this, there's no way, like this is, like you couldn't time it if, yeah, you, if you tried. Right, to. exactly. And, uh, you know, it just uh, it reaffirms a greater power somewhere because you know that, you know, because I, I understand for myself that my ticket's already punched. I just don't know the date. And I think that's the same for everybody. And so you just see these things and you're like, well, that's they were supposed to die right there because yeah. that's when it happened. Yeah. Um, anything else from uh, from your time doing that? I mean, uh, I guess. If you're working traffic, one thing I'm curious about in Arizona, because uh, I'm into cars, and some of the rallies, the national rallies run through Arizona. And yeah. in Arizona, if you're doing more than 20 over, it's automatic go criminal. to jail, right? Well, it's criminal speed, so you don't necessarily have to go to jail, um, but you know there is that option. And so what criminal speed means, so it is 20 and over, uh, what that means is uh, you're getting a criminal ticket, and so the difference being... If, you, if you're getting a civil ticket, you don't have to sign that ticket, and the officer will just give you the ticket and say, well, you've been served, you have to show up to court. If you don't show up, you'll probably get a suspended license. Criminal ticket, officer will say, hey, you're getting a criminal ticket, I need you to sign, and if you refuse to sign, then you get arrested and he takes you before a magistrate. Um, or you sign the ticket and it's called a sight and release. Oh, okay. 
Any crazy chase stories working traffic? Oh, uh, yeah. Um, probably one of the crazier ones was uh, it was New Year's Eve 2000 going into 2001. So we're December 31st, and I think it had just rung the bell. So we were just into 2001, January. And uh, my buddy pulls over a car, and we're in one of the cities in our county. He pulls over a car, and it pulls into, like, an auto zone parking lot. And I had a, a brand-new guy, a rookie, riding with me. So we pull in, and we pull on the, the passenger side. And so <clears throat> he kind of offsets his vehicle on the left where he can see the driver and the mirror and all that stuff. I offset my vehicle on the right, and I've got the rookie with me. And as I'm pulling up, I'm watching the guy in his uh, passenger side mirror and he's I can see that he's looking at my buddy through his driver's side mirror and he keeps looking at him and then he'll look over at me and then he'll look at him and then he'll look at me so my guy starts to get out and I said get back in the car dude and he says well why and I said because he's about to run just stand by so I leave my car and drive because I can see you know you see what he's thinking you can see it go through his head so as my buddy gets out and starts to approach sure as shit he punches it and so we're on him and uh, he goes out into the street and comes back around and back into the parking lot. So I'm chasing him, and my buddy <laughs> takes off, and so now my buddy's behind me. So now you got the bad guy leading the chase, goes back into the parking lot. I come behind him. My buddy comes behind me. Eventually, he comes out again and does another loop. Now he's caught up to my buddy. So essentially, we're chasing in a circle <laughs> through this parking lot, and he's now behind my, my buddy chasing him, and I'm chasing him chasing my buddy. And so then at, uh, after about four loops through that parking lot, he finally takes off uh, straight down a road, and we end up in probably, I think it was probably about a 15-minute pursuit. And uh, at one point, he goes into a desert area that goes towards a housing project and uh, kind of a gangster area. And uh, he's hauling ass across open desert going towards houses, and the back of these houses all have chain-link fence. And he's going towards what looks to be a house party. And uh, as we're getting closer and closer, this is a Mexican neighborhood. And uh, so <clears throat> we're getting closer and I can see that it's kind of uh, a house party with a bunch of gangsters back there, flannels, and they're all, you know, decked out. And so I'm thinking, okay, well, he's, he's with them and he's going, he's running for their, uh, the safety spot there. So as we get to that point, um, he comes to a screeching halt right behind that house, that party. And so I get out and I start yelling all kinds of stuff at him, getting his hands up and stuff. Well, he was drunk, and so he forgot to take his seatbelt off as he tried to bail out. And so he would try and jump out of the vehicle, which was like a conversion van thing. As he would jump out, the, the seatbelt would jerk him back in. He'd try to jump out and jerk him back in. And I'm yelling at him, and, you know, I'm yelling, get your fucking hands up and let me see your hands. And uh, I had a camera in my car. And so... I'm dealing with him. I'm focused on him. I'm not too worried about the guys because they're not giving us any shit. They're, they're all kind of just standing over there in that backyard. Eventually, a couple more guys catch up to me. We get him out of the car, hook him up, and, and uh, ends up being a drunk. Had nothing to do with that party. Oh, um, wow. I, I don't know why he ran for that particular spot, but he had nothing to do with those guys. We get him hooked up. I go back and I play the footage, and the funniest thing to me was as I jumped out of my car initially and started yelling at him, get your fucking hands up, all those dudes put their hands up, <laughs> set their beers down, and they all started like interlacing their fingers and, oh, and getting man. in the position. And I never saw any of that happen, so I'm watching it on film. And then finally one of them, he has his hands on the car, 
And uh, he kind of looks back to see what's going on, and he notices, like, oh, he's not talking to us. <laughs> so he puts his hands down, and slowly but surely, all of them kind of, you know, straighten themselves out. And, and <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, that's awesome. God, that's wild. I, uh, well, so going back to the him taking off and doing loops, obviously he's drunk, he's not thinking right, but I mean, at that point, if you've pulled a guy over, you know, and, and as they walk up, he bails. I mean, if, if that's actually his car, his license plate, like, you know who he is. Right. If that happens, what's the follow-up on your end? Does it totally depend? Like, if it's a clean record, maybe nothing. If there's a warrant, you try to find him. Like, anything in between, depending on how busy you are. Is there a protocol? Yeah, there is. There's there's policies. There's procedures. Um, and it really depends on what the stop's for, um, if what indicators you have of, of criminal activity, and then the surroundings. So we were, like I said, we were midnight, hardly any vehicles on the road at all. Um, and it was kind of, uh, it was on the kind of the south end of town, which was on the outskirts of town. So given those circumstances, we were good to chase them uh, because we had open roads, not a lot of traffic, not a lot of pedestrians, none of that stuff at that time of night. Um, so we were good to go. But it all depends on your factors, right? If that had been a congested area, a lot of people, we probably would have broke contact early on. Yeah. In the scenario where, let's say, he had gotten away and you'd lost him, yeah, would you have tried to go to yeah. his house and all that? Yeah, they would have. So, a lot of times, that's what will happen. If we have a good plate, um, you know, they'll send guys over. So, as we're dealing with that, guys will be over, kind of waiting to see does he show up here, or yeah. if we have any associate houses, does he show up there? Yeah, it's one thing. Uh, I don't know if you follow on YouTube, the Arkansas State Patrol, like they're notorious. Like they'll chase. It's like they have dash cam footage. There's probably thousands of them at this point. But a lot of them are guys, you know, they'll pull over. And as, yeah, as soon as the dude gets up to the window, they punch it. Yeah. And they'll fucking chase him for 20 minutes, 30 minutes. And they're, I mean, through ditches, running people off the road. Like some of the shit, I'm like, man, that seems kind of counterproductive. But yeah. And uh, we, I'll be honest, we do some of that in our county. We we chase, because we have a, a, a little bit of an illegal problem, right, in our yeah. county. Illegal alien smuggling going through. And uh, we have a high number of pursuits comparatively to yeah. um, other people around us. But you have to weigh, you know, is the is the juice worth the worth the yeah. squeeze? Yeah. yeah. The Mike Drop Podcast is proud to be sponsored by American Hartford Gold. Uh, these days, the economy is all over the place. Interest rates are crazy. Inflation is nuts. Uh, a lot of times it's tough to trust the government. What I will say is that having, um, you know, some sort of liquidity on hand, i.e. cash, gold, et cetera, is, uh, is important. The problem with cash, and I'm speaking from personal experience, is that whether it's 500, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000, however much cash you want to keep on hand, be it in a safe or what have you, is that let's say it's $1,000. You put that in a safe. Well, five years from now, if you're hanging on to that for emergencies or whatever, Five years from now, that's still going to be worth one thousand American dollars. A thousand dollars in gold five years from now is going to be worth more than that. If you look at the the historical trend of gold since it's been kept track of in the United States and people have been keeping it on hand, it's gone up. You know, you you really can't go wrong with it, uh, and I think it's a it's a good hedge against inflation in that manner. Um, American Hartford Gold is committed to help you by bringing you the truth of that. They have a five-star rating from thousands of reviews and an A-plus from the Better Business Bureau. They can show you how to help protect all your savings and retirement accounts. If you don't want to keep physical gold, you can do gold IRAs or you can have it delivered to your doorstep. It can be set up from a traditional IRA, a 401k, or a thrift savings plan. 
really however it is that you want to incorporate gold into your portfolio, whether it's a significant portion of your portfolio or just having some liquidity at home that's not losing money every time inflation goes up, which it continues to do, call them now at 855-967-1413 to see if you can qualify for up to $15,000 of free silver on your first order. That's 855-967-1413 or text DROP, D-R-O-P, all caps, to 65532. Again, that's 855-967-1413 or text DROP to 65532. American Hartford Gold will hook you up. Message and data rates may apply. Individual results may vary. Past performance may not be indicative of future results. Consult with your tax attorney or financial professional before making an investment decision. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Fascinating. All right. So stage three of your career. Now you move from beat cop into. Uh, went from beat cop and I got recruited from traffic into narcs uh, to, to do undercover work. And so <clears throat> I, I move into that. And uh, did that for, I think I only did undercover for about a year before I tested for sergeant and uh, uh, got promoted and moved to sergeant and went back to patrol. How was the undercover work? Can you talk about it much? Yeah, I can talk about some of it. And it was cool. It was, uh, people always ask, like, what was the favorite undercover work? Yeah. By far the favorite. Yeah. Um, you're beating them at their own game on their territory. Um, and I was comfortable because, like I said, I grew up in kind of a rough area. Uh, around gangs, around dope, all that stuff. And so I wasn't uncomfortable in that realm, so it wasn't hard for me to work in that realm. Um, and I love beating them at their own game. I mean, it's just the it's the best because you're, you're getting them on their territory, yeah. their terms. When you first got into that unit, was there a 30,000-foot view sit-down where a higher-up said, okay, we're, this, is our, this is the big mish, like this is what we're trying to accomplish? Or was it super microscopic no it was it was kind of both so uh they gave you the broad perspective of here's here's like our overall mission is you know essentially to reduce drugs and disrupt drug trafficking organizations um and then you particularly here's going to be your role and of course as a new narc you know i don't know what i'm doing and so you're teamed up with an experienced person and uh, they kind of show you the ropes and you end up training with them for a few months getting getting your feet wet and learning how to do it um, and then they, they break you in. Um, and there's some people that go into that realm, into narcs, that don't do undercover work. Um, they're, they're not built for that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, everybody has roles in there. And so uh, for me in particular, I was okay with doing the undercover work. I wasn't uncomfortable doing that. So I would, you know, I got to do some hand-to-hands, make some deals, and then you're working um, sources, informants. You're, you're carrying a caseload and working informants. Um, and that's really the the bread and butter is the informant piece is is cultivating informants and, and yeah. working up the chain. So full disclosure, I've never bought drugs on the street, right? Right. I, I am curious, like from an undercover standpoint, like how do you even break into that? I mean, is it knowing what to look for? Like, oh, I bet that guy's got something. Let me go 
I'm, I'm assuming like you got to ask them a certain right. way and, and like, I mean, how do, how do you even get into that? Yeah. And that's, that's the piece where I was saying not everybody's built for it. Yeah. Right. Cause you'll have some guys that Just would fuck it up. Oh, they'd walk up and they'd be like, excuse <laughs> me, sir. I would like to buy a usable quantity of methamphetamine. <laughs> get the fuck out of here. dude. <laughs> yeah. You got it. So you got to know the lingo. Um, but again, a lot of it is, um, working information. So, you'll get information from the street deputies that are like, Hey, we heard so-and-so is dealing dope. Maybe you guys can watch that house and do some takeaways. And, and so you'll watch a house and, and you'll, you'll see the activity level going on. So a lot of surveillance, a lot of following people, picking up habits, life patterns, um, and then working into, so once you pick up those patterns, working yourself into those patterns. Yeah. Did you, uh, dress wise, is there like a, a look you're going for? No, I think that's a, a big, a big misconception about the, the UC work is that you have to look a certain way. Uh, cause when it, when it gets down to it, you have to, you have to be comfortable with your persona, whatever your undercover persona is. Um, because you have guys that come in there and they think it's like training day, right? You're going to go out and you're going to, um, run around and, and do crazy shit like that. And it, that's not the case at all. You, you pick a persona that, that you can that pull you can off. live. Yeah. First of all, cause you know, there's no way I could pull off being a black gangster <laughs> and I'm not going to try and talk like that. I'm not going to try and act like that. Cause you get called on it real quick. Well, in today's day and age, you can be whatever you want. Well, that's so. true. Yeah. You could, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of pretend going on. Yeah. yeah. But, uh, no. So you, you kind of pick a persona and that's, you know, cause I teach undercover stuff and that's what I tell these new narcs is like, pick something that you know, understand and are comfortable with because you're going to get called on it at some point, right? Somebody's going to ask you and I've seen mistakes made before. I had one, one of my guys one time when I was the narc sergeant, he was playing the part of a landscaper. And so he goes to make a deal and the guy says, so what do you do for work? And he says, oh, I'm a landscaper. And he says, oh, cool. How much, you know, if I wanted to get 30 ton of rock over at my house, how much would that cost? And he's like, oh, I don't know. Like, what do you mean? You don't know. I thought you were a landscaper, right? And so uh, there was a little back and forth and he worked himself out of it. But I told him, I'm like, bro, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Like, you got to know what you're doing. And so for me, I had a certain persona that I, you know, was me. It was just a different name um, with a background of stuff I knew so that if I got questioned on it, you know, I'd have a solid solid yeah, base yeah. yeah any cool stories from uh from that time yeah i think one of my cooler stories was uh when i so i was undercover as a as a detective right so i i moved out of traffic became an undercover detective and then i said i promoted out and i promoted out to sergeant and i was a sergeant on the street eventually came back to narcs as a sergeant and as the narc sergeant um i was getting ready to promote once again uh to lieutenant and, uh, or I, I take that back. I was going to get moved out to traffic again. That's right. So I was going to get moved out to traffic. And so I knew that my narc time was coming to an end. I was working an active case on a biker crew. Um, and I was one off of a cook. And so what that means is there's a dude that cooks meth, right? And he, he puts it all together and, and makes the crystal meth. I was dealing with the dude that was just below him and who actually happened to be his dad. So dad was the one-off guy, son was the cook. So I was dealing with dad and, uh, dude, I, I love the dude. Like he reminded me of one of my uncles and, uh, <laughs> it, and it's weird because I'm, you know, I'm playing this part, but I got to know the guy, like the guy, cause you're yeah. dealing with them over time. Um, he would call me, you know, I had a burner phone and he would call me and he'd, and my undercover name was Mike, Mike, you know, my girl broke up with me and we'd talk about, you know, yeah. I'd talk him through some of that and, and, uh. 
So when we got to the end of the deal where we were going to bust him, um, it, it's what they call a buy bust. And so um, we did our last deal. I bought some meth from him. Uh, we had bumped up our amounts, and so I, I got a significant amount from him. Which and, is how much? Uh, at that point, we were only dealing ounces. So, and, and that was back then, that was more significant. An ounce was more significant for meth. So <clears throat> I buy my ounce, I give him the money, and I give the signal for our guys to come in and make the arrest. And, and a buy bust arrest means I'm getting arrested too. So we're, everybody there is getting arrested. Um, so we all get arrested. Uh, they take us off to separate cars and stuff. And uh, at some point later on that evening, they're interviewing him and he's, he's playing hardball. He's, you know, not talking and all that. So they say, hey, you can, you go in and talk to him. So, yeah. Oh man. So I go in and I have my badge on and stuff and I walk in and I'm like, Hey bro, like the gig is up. Like I'm a cop. And so he, he and we're in a small interview room. He looks around and he's like, Mike, the fuck dude. Like they're going to, you can't be wearing that shit. <laughs> no. And I'm like, no dude, like I'm a cop. And he goes, Oh, okay, whatever, man. He goes, did they put you up to this? And I'm like, dude. So I have to get my ID and stuff. And I'm like, bro, I'm a cop. And he's like, oh, man. And this was the part that was, it was kind of heartbreaking for me. Um, he looked me dead in my eyes and he goes, dude, I thought you were my friend. Man. And I was like, oh, bro, like, I'm sorry. You're a drug dealer, man. Like, I was just doing a job. But I did, you know, I did like the guy. It was, yeah. yeah. Dude, that would be tough. I mean, obviously, there are some instances where, guys can't do it right, right. Or, or they even flip and give them the heads up and they get dirty and, and or even get in on it i mean that right. does happen not right. yeah. not a lot but um, yeah you'll have it happen every yeah. once in a while yep man that would be a struggle it also makes me think how many poor decisions have you had to make in your life if you're working for your son who's <laughs> cooking meth <laughs> right. like holy shit right right like you have fucked up a lot yeah to well get and the funny thing was this guy um there was one night that the the, the I think it was the second time we met, maybe the third time we met, and, and we were initially dealing with each other. Um, my my background to him was essentially a divorced dad, and uh, you know I needed to make money for both alimony and child support. I was getting raped by the system, and so he was he was friendly to that cause and, and helped me out. And so it was our second deal because he was like, "Hey, you know how that." the first stuff. And I was like, I, I guess it was good. You know, the, the dude said it was good. And he's like, well, did you break it down at all? And I'm like, oh man, I'm like, what are you talking about? And he's like, well, dude, you got to cut that shit. It's pure. Like you've got to cut it or you're going to kill somebody. I'm like, dude, I don't know how to cut it. Like I've never dealt drugs before in my life. I told you how I got into this mess and I don't know what I'm doing. He's like, God damn it, Mike. <laughs> so he says, all right. So he gives me a 20 minute breakdown in my in my undercover ride of how to properly cut meth so that it's you know cut down enough it's not too pure and kill people and uh when my prosecutor heard that tape he was like holy shit he's like because you know what happens here's what happens right we arrest him and he shows up in court in a suit your honor this is my first time i've never done this before well we got 20 minute 20 minute tape of him talking about yeah. how to properly break down dope so yeah. it's obviously not his first rodeo so uh, when he did that for me, man, he sealed his fate. And, and the best up thing was he ended up dying in jail. He got a lot of years out of that case, and then he ended up dying in jail uh, a few years later. What a fascinating world. Uh, any other wild stories? I guess, you know, one thing I'm curious of before, before you answer that, 
in terms of kind of your EDC as a as an undercover narc, is there a protocol of like you need to have this, this, and this on, or what, or is it totally? No. And back then we were a little more cowboyish, so it was uh, it was even more so your call. Um, Are you wearing a wire? Sometimes, yeah. And sometimes there's, and nowadays you're wearing video and audio. Uh, back then we were a lot of audio, so you're wearing a wire. Um, you usually most of us would carry a gun because, especially when we're dealing with the Mexicans. Uh, from from down south, uh, when you're dealing with them, you never know when something's going to kick off. Because sometimes something will kick off that doesn't involve you, but you're there, and so you have to have a means to protect yourself. But uh, yeah, the, the, so the EDC was really um, the department had specific smaller handguns that we would be able to carry as undercover and uh, use those for our deals, so they're more high, you know, easily easily concealable. Um, and really like back then i was uh that's when i was training more i was doing uh i was doing jeet kundo actually and so i was it was you know bruce lee's methodology and so uh when i was training i was training a little bit of collie sticks a little bit of knife fighting uh some groundwork and some muay thai stuff and so um i didn't carry a knife per se uh, but I would, when we would go in to do deals and stuff, I would immediately identify like, what can I grab and shove in somebody's eye or, you know, that kind of shit. And then you have your gun on you as well. Uh, because sometimes you just can't, especially like when you're working in a vehicle, it is very tough. If you get in a fight in that vehicle, it's hard to get your gun pulled and, and go to work yeah. in those small quarters. Yeah. What, uh, what tickled your fancy gun wise as an undercover narc? Well, it, it was kind of really not our choice uh it was issued to us so we were given uh beretta 380 jesus which yeah looking back at it you're like what the fuck but you know at the time it seemed seemed all right and i didn't know any better Um, i'd rather have a a small two inch hammerless snub nose 357 like just one of those tiny little five yeah five round well and again they it was kind of decided for you right because the agency said hey Here's the undercover gun we provide, and you really didn't have options outside of that, yeah, so that's sucks. what you, you carried, yeah. Did you carry a blade also? I did, yeah. What? Uh, it was just a foldable. Spyderco has been yeah. the thing, right? So Spyderco has been around since I uh, was a young cop, and that's like the OG clip-on pocket knife for cops, and yeah. so I carried a Spyderco. In your entire line of work, have you ever shot or stabbed anybody? I have. Um, I think if I stabbed, no, I didn't stab anybody. No, no stabs. Um, I've shot one guy in a jail riot. Um, our, our, I was on a SWAT team, and our jail kicked off, and they took over a pod. We had to take it back. You kill him? Um, no. Uh, and it was it was crazy because it was uh, I did not actually shoot him. I shot him with less, less lethal 12-gauge, but I shot him point blank, like probably from me to my book um, yeah. in the chest. And I was trying to kill him because he was trying to kill me. The, when the door opened, I was the first guy in. And as soon as the door opened, he had what we call a spear. So it's basically a shank on the end of a mop handle. And uh, I was wearing Kevlar, and I had a gas mask on. And uh, as soon as the door opened, he shoved that spear out, and it hit my helmet, and then it rode down. So it cut my face mask and came down my my body. And as that was happening, I punched my 12-gauge forward with less lethal, and I shot him uh, right in the chest, and he disappeared so boom shot goes off and all of a sudden he's gone and i mean you know how it is in the fog of war right so this is all happening very quickly but in my mind everything's going very slow so i shoot he disappears but it's very smoky in there because they had already we had put tear gas in there and all this shit 
So it's very smoky. He disappears. And I remember thinking like, where the fuck did he go? And I'm just baffled at where he went because I shot him and I know it just didn't blow him to pieces. And as I'm thinking that another guy is running at me um, with something in his hands. And so I, you know, flip back into go mode and I come up on him and I, I let him have one too, right in the, I center punched him. Um, and then shit just went wild, like all kinds of, so then my team around me started launching shit. There was a 37 here. I remember that distinctly because it was very fucking loud. <laughs> so 37 goes off with wooden rounds and they start shooting down range. These guys start shooting down range and we start assaulting forward and take it back. And I, so when you back up to the initial shot, what we, what we didn't see, what I didn't see, what the people watching from downstairs, our command staff, cause our sheriff at the time was down behind glass watching this take place. Um, there was a stairwell immediately to my right when the door opened. So when I shot him, he fell down and went all the way down the stairs. Oh, damn. Um, and uh, it broke his sternum, but I, for the life of me, I don't know why it didn't explode his heart because yeah. uh, he took it straight in the center wow. there. And so uh, that was that guy. Um, and the other shooting I was involved in was another SWAT call. Um, and uh, this one was an old Vietnam vet. Um, he had gotten in a fight with his uh, his son and his, um, I guess, I don't know if she was ex-wife or not, but it was a DV kind of situation. Um, <clears throat> he had barricaded up in the backyard of a house inside of a, like a Greyhound bus that had been converted to kind of like a motorhome. Uh, so he was in there. He wasn't giving up. He was going to, you know, I'm not going back to jail, all the shit that they say all the time. And uh, so we had a gas plan in place. And as soon as I launched the, I was the first round of gas. So as soon as they gave the call to launch gas, I launched my first round of gas. And I had a single shot 37. So I launched my first round and I'm under gas mask and all that stuff. Launched my first round and because I, I can see where he's at. Um, he's kind of, um, he's backlit in the windows so I can see him walking and I punch around behind him to try and keep him to one part of the bus. As soon as that round goes in, I look down, break my 37 open to put in another round and I hear pop, pop, pop. And so I was kind of like, what was that? That was like way lower than a 37. I knew it wasn't a 37 millimeter and I figured somebody else was going to be launching gas. So I looked at my partner. I said, hey, did somebody else shoot gas or, or like shotgun rounds or... He goes, no, I, th I think he's shooting at us. Like, nah, you know, it can't be. He's an old man. He's not going to shoot at us. So I load up my next gas round, and I put another round in the bus, boom. And as soon as I launch that second round, um, and if anybody's seen a 37 go off in the dark, there is a signature flash like nobody's business, right? So um, got that flash and backlit us, and he, he went to work on us. He started laying down rounds our way, so... We grabbed cover and he was shooting at us. And then, so not only was he shooting at us, but he started shooting at our teammates who were in a, a armored vehicle. Do you know what he was using? <clears throat> he had an SKS at that point. So he was firing off an SKS. Actually, he had an SKS and a shotgun with slugs. Um, and I remember because you would hear the SKS and he had a 45. And yeah. you could hear the distinct differences between the rounds. And then the 12 gauge, when he shot that, he actually shot our armored vehicle. And I remember, you know, you hear the shotgun blast and a bong, <laughs> like, holy shit. Dude, he wasn't fucking around. No, he, he went to war on us, man. And, and uh, so <clears throat> we get cover 
and we're up on a roof. So, cause that gave us the angle down into the bus and kind of a spot where he wouldn't suspect, you know, we would be. Um, but the problem with that is we were kind of in the open once he started shooting. All we had was an AC unit to get behind, and then we ran down the roof a little ways, and there was a, a drop in elevation, and we got behind that drop and kind of hung out there while the gunfire uh, settled down. So we had a sniper, and uh, he took a lull in the gunfight, and then a few minutes later uh, they made some announcements or something like our, our uh, negotiators, and he starts shooting again, and he's shooting at the, the armored vehicle. So I asked my sniper, like, can you see him? And he said, no, I can't see him. All I can see is the flash of the, the rifle. And I said, well, fucking shoot that, dude. Like, put some rounds on him. So the sniper takes a couple shots at the flashes, assuming that a guy was shouldering the rifle and standing behind it. Um, and the gunfire stopped. So we're like, oh, fuck. okay, cool. Sniper got him. So we chill for a few minutes, and uh, then he goes to town again, starts shooting again at the armored vehicle. And uh, so me and my partner are talking during this, and I said, hey, dude, you have a better position. If you can pop up, if, if you pop up real quick and tell me where you see the gunfire on the bus, where he's at, then I'm going to pop up and I'm going to put it on him. And he's like, all right. And so he gets up and gets back down, and he's like, "Okay, you know, like third window over, or whatever." So I said, "All right, if he keeps shooting, dude, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get after it." And so he's all right. So we told all of our people around because we had different uh, elements and different positions that were not in armor; they were on foot behind, you know, corners of buildings and stuff. So we told everybody, "Stand by, grab cover, because I, I can't see my backdrop, but I'm going for him." So everybody else gets some cover because we're gonna put it on him from this angle. So everybody gets checks in, cover, 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 cover. Everybody's good, and he starts shooting again. And so I pop up, and at that time I had a HK fifty three, so I was shooting a, a HK two two three. And uh, I, when I pop, my buddy says, "This window, boom!" I pop up, and I start laying rounds on him or at the flash. I'm essentially shooting at his flash, and uh, I just, I went to work with my rifle. My my buddy, for whatever reason, chose his pistol. He starts shooting with his pistol, and we're just shooting, 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 and then everything stops. And once it, it, it all stopped, we laid back down. We check each other. Anybody hit? No, we're all good. Anybody down there hit? No, everybody's good. Lull in the gunfight. So we're like, okay, we had to get him that time, right? And uh, lo and behold, we did not hit him. <laughs> so, uh, And we didn't know that at the time because there was a pretty good lull in the gunfight. And, and at this point, there was probably a couple hundred rounds exchanged back and forth. And so <clears throat> everything settles down, no more shooting for quite a while. And uh, then all of a sudden we hear one pop and it's kind of a weird muffled pop, right? And so we're not sure what's going on. Shoot himself. That's what ended up happening, yeah. yeah. So um, to shorten the story a little bit, we end up breaching that, that Greyhound getting in there, uh, finding him, he self-inflicted gunshot wound. None of our rounds hit him. Wow. None of them, it was amazing. He, and so what they, what the investigators think he was doing was when he would shoot, he would squat down, go over the top of his head and just fire at where he thought we were. Um, and so we were firing at what we thought was a shouldered weapon, but he had it up high. So we were shooting over the top of him essentially. The, in terms of the cover though, I mean, he was just behind a thin skinned bus though, right? Yeah, pretty so, much. I mean, if yeah. you had gone low, it would have yeah. got him. Yeah. We would yeah. got, got some hits. Yeah. How, how long did you wait from, 
the time you hear the muffled pop, the, the single shot before he actually went in and found him. That was probably probably a good two hours. Oh, no shit. Yeah, so we the, the negotiators were working it because um, we thought he was trying to bait us in uh, because of how the night went. And so ultimately what we ended up doing, we got removed from the rooftop, um, got some relief. I went back, I, I got coffee, I grabbed something to shove down my throat real quick, I, like a hamburger, whatever they had at the command post. Um, and then they said, hey, we need a team in the armor because we're going to rotate them out. So I took the armored vehicle, went back out, and eventually got the order to try and breach the door. And, uh, dude, I got the luckiest hit because we have a ram on the front of our, our armor. I got the luckiest hit ever, and uh, I hit the door to the bus just at the right spot that uh, disengaged the hydraulics. And so psh, the bus door opens up oh, wow. and he was actually laying right there and he was still breathing uh, because he had something over the top of him, like a handkerchief or something. And, and you could see it flutter with breath. So again, we thought he was playing possum and we sent a dog. The dog ran up, grabbed him by the leg, pulled him out. But, and you could see, you know, uh, it was a dead body essentially when, yeah. when the dog pulled him out, he was just limp okay. and got pulled all the way down. Wow, man. That's a gnarly story. It was crazy. Um, I don't mess with old men anymore. Especially old, old Vietnam. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, so bounced around a little bit there, but uh, going back to Sergeant Narc, S Sergeant in the Narc Division, um, and then from there, where did you go? Did you go into SWAT after that? Uh, no, so SWAT's a collateral duty okay. for us. So um, I got on SWAT uh, in the late, like, 97 as a deputy. So I was on the team as just a regular uh a regular operator, right? Yeah. And uh, then when I promoted to sergeant, I got moved into a team leader position. So as, as a collateral duty, it kind of mirrored you know, I got my, you. my climb. About how many SWAT officers are there for that, that county? Uh, for us, we're running right around, with negotiators and everything, we're right around the 50 mark. Yeah. And uh, specialty-wise, did you have anything? I didn't. I was just a, just a regular a, just door a, kicker. Yeah, yeah, door kicker and, and runner and gunner. I didn't do breaching. I mean, I I did breaching, but I wasn't a breacher. Right. Um, and I didn't do any of the sniping stuff. I don't. I'm too ADD for that. Yeah. Uh, does Does that county have a dedicated canine for SWAT, or is or is it piggybacking off of patrol guys? We no, it piggybacks off. So our our canines are dual purpose. They'll do patrol work and bite work, or bite work and dope work, um, and. Uh, we pull from them um, because it has to, the dog has to have a certain temperament, yeah. obviously. And so um, right now we have one particular dog that we use because he has the temperament, the team, you know, he gets along with the team and jails yeah. with him. I got you. Um, all right. So as, as you, from sergeant in the NARC department, where do you go from there? Then I go, we, we get a new sheriff and uh, anytime there's a switch in administration, a lot of times you have movement, right? And so <clears throat> I was the NARC sergeant. They came to me. They said, hey, we're starting a new motor unit. We didn't have motorcycle cops then. And uh, I had a reputation of getting shit done and fixing shit. And so they said, you're supposedly the get shit done guy. So this is the sheriff's pet project. We're standing up a motor unit. So go stand up this motor unit. Um, so I moved back over to traffic, essentially, and uh, stood up our first motor unit, and I was one of two. Uh, so me and one other guy uh, passed the motor school because it has a high attrition rate. Got through, 
uh, became the first motors for the county and then built that program up from there. So Ponch and John. That was it, man. That was it, dude. <laughs> we were cruising. There's <laughs> going to be a, a, a big portion of the audience who has no fucking idea what I know, talking right? about. I know, right? Which makes yeah, us the old guy. Ponch, who's yeah, Ponch? What the fuck? <laughs> we couldn't prove that he specifically flipped because of that, but he was he was a bad guy. Yeah. Or turned into one. Yeah. guys, welcome to the Candy Valentino Show. I'm Candy Valentino. I was a founder before I could legally order a drink. And for more than two and a half decades, I've built, scaled, acquired, and exited multiple businesses in diverse industries. Now my goal is to help you by sharing the knowledge that I've learned, the mistakes that I've made, and the wisdom that I've developed over my journey. Bi-weekly episodes every Monday and Thursday. The Candy Valentino Show, wherever you listen.